God's word today, and, and that's what we, we hope and, uh, and pray. Dave, just where you're sitting, would you just ask God's blessing on our message today, please? Thanks. Amen. So we've read the passage. Um, what a joy it was last week to think about the promise of pardon from God, um, from Isaiah 55, the abundant pardon that he provides, including the forgiveness of our sins. One of my new favorite verses is Romans 8.32, which says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God has acknowledged that he will pardon our sins and provide that forgiveness for us, is there now some way, somehow, that he will withhold from us other blessings? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. In other words, since God gave us the greater gift of the abundant pardon of forgiveness provided by his son, Jesus Christ, is he now somehow going to hesitate to fulfill his lesser promises? In other words, will he withhold anything if he's already given the greatest and best? And the answer to that, of course, is no. Bible tells us over and over that in this world we will have tribulation. Where then can we go for comfort and deliverance? Where do we turn when days are dark? What hope is there when sorrows like sea billows roll? Scripture tells us that we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. We are called, Bible says, to share in the sufferings of Christ. So when our way becomes difficult, no matter what the circumstances happen to be, where will we turn? And so many people, when they're turning for comfort or looking for comfort, they turn to the wrong things, whether it be substance or sex or relationships or distractions. I would think most people today turn to amusement for comfort. They try to dull or numb their minds with some sort of uh, entertainment, whether it be television, movies. This is why there's such a, a massive amount of interest in, 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 in money spent on entertainment, I thought about this last night when we were watching the Michigan game on TV. Anybody see the? I mean, the rain is coming down, and you got these devoted people standing in the rain, you know, you know watching this game and, and the devotion to this entertainment, because they can lay aside things and not think about things for a while. In fact, a lot of people say this about sports or about entertainment. They say, "Well, it's my distraction. It gets me, it gets me to stop thinking about real life and the troubles that there are." Is there any promise greater than that for us in these times? In other words, where is our comfort? We already read 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and this promise of comfort, a little background on this. The main purpose of 2 Corinthians is for Paul to defend his apostleship to the Corinthians. Remember in 1 Corinthians, he wrote this kind of scathing letter uh, because they were not dealing with sin that was in their church. A guy had uh, an incestuous relationship and they weren't kicking him out of the church and Paul's like, you got to knock this off now. And so then, whenever you don't like what someone says, you do an ad hominem attack, right? You, you, you don't like the message, so you now say that there's a trouble with the messenger. And that's what they did to Paul. So he writes another letter to kind of defend himself and his apostleship. I, I am appointed by God. This is a ministry given to me by God. And that's why I have the ability and, and the necessity to point these things out. But he's going to begin with this note of encouragement. He starts with, blessed be the God and Father. Sounds real similar to a lot of his introductions. That word blessed is a word that means eulogy. It means to speak well about, to glorify. So he's glorifying God in verses 1, 3, really all the way to 11 
for the comfort that God provides his people when they are afflicted. Okay? But the way he's going to begin is by pointing out two specific names and attributes of God that drive his ability and desire to comfort us. Okay? I probably will say this again later, but it is, it is the nature or character of God that drives his action to give comfort. In other words, since God is a God of compassion, he gives compassion. Since God is a God of comfort, he gives comfort. His nature drives his action. It's not the other way around. In other words, God is not, God, we don't say that God is love because he does loving things. He does loving things because he is love. Yeah, follow what I'm saying? So, so we, we want to focus, whenever we are in trouble or trial or difficulty, the main thing we want to focus on is the character of God. Because that is what? Immutable, or another word is unchanging. His character, he will not be compassionate today and be angry or, or flippant tomorrow. Whatever his character is, it remains unchanged. Psalm 102, 27, I think, is a good verse for that. So what are the two names that, that kind of begin this study? It's Father of Mercies, God of Comfort. Those are the two names. He, this is kind of just all background and information before we get to the actual comfort he's going to pray. Father of Mercies and God of Comfort. Let's start with Father of Mercies. This term actually builds on what we talked about last week because the word mercy could also be translated compassion. So we could be calling, this is the compassionate father. It's a word that means to take pity upon someone when we see their misery, to express compassion for another's condition. I try to think about different ways to express this and they always, always came out trite. If it was if it's raining kind of like it is and cold and chilly and I'm driving down Van Dyke on the way home and I see a guy on the side of the road with a flat tire, you know what we always say? We, oh, that poor family. Oh, that poor guy. That's about as far as our compassion extends for most of us, right? And so they call AAA or they have uh, OnStar or they'll get it taken care of somehow. That the extent of our compassion is, oh, that's too bad. And that's not the extent of God's compassion. It is the idea of bending and condescending to us that God would have pity on us, that he is a compassionate, seeing, caring God. Remember the passage in Isaiah chapter 40 at the very end when Isaiah is talking to people who think that God, God doesn't see or God doesn't care. Uh, he says that the people of Israel were saying, why is my way passed over by God? Why does he not notice my trial? Why does he not notice my situation? And why is he not powerful enough to do something to stop it? And we often feel that way. But the idea here is that God does see, God does care, and God does move to action with compassion when his children are hurting and troubled. In fact, it's fun to look in the Bible at the other places where God is called the father of something. Can you think of another place? I mean, we can, we can kind of discuss for a minute. Can you think of another name that is given? We have father of mercies. Can you think of another one where he's called the father of something? What? The father of light? Yeah, the father of light. That's, that's another one. Does anyone think of another one? It's okay. It's, it's just off the spur of the moment. I just thought maybe. Let's, let's walk through a couple of them. We won't turn to all these verses. He's called the father of glory in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, which indicates he is the father of splendor or brightness. He is the glorious father. In Hebrews 12, 9, he's called the father of spirits. 
Most people think that means he's the father of our spirits. We could really say he's the father of life. Because in Hebrews chapter 12, it's talking about uh, our earthly fathers. So they are our fathers according to the flesh. But then we have the father of our spirits. He is the father of all life. Derek mentioned the father of lights. It indicates his creative power. He is the father of the heavenly beings. When you see the sun rise, the sun set, that sun, the moon, the stars, they are all begotten of God. They are all, in a sense, sons of God. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, he's called the father of all. The father of all. He is sovereign. He is in control. Now let's make a couple of thoughts on this idea of the father. Father of glory, father of spirits, father of mercies, our passage, father of lights, father of all. Which one doesn't seem to fit? Let's repeat him again. Father of glory, father of spirits, or father of life, father of lights, father of mercy, father of all. Which one doesn't seem to fit? That seemed, okay, why would you say that? Okay, but that's talking about his sovereign control. Think about what it's talking about. It's ta- as we go through it, glory, talking about his brightness and splendor. Life, talking about his transcendence, his, his, his life-giving power. Uh, the father of lights, his creative power. Father of all, his sovereign control. And then you have the father of mercy. That's the one that's supposed to stick out. Compassion? So you got, you got like transcendence, power, life, sovereignty, pity. See what I've done here for us? By taking those five phrases, you think, why in the world would the sovereign, powerful, life-giving, father of all, sovereign, controlling God, pity people who rebel against him? The father of mercies doesn't really fit. Why would he stoop to extend pity to us when the only reason we are in the condition we are in is because of our rebellion to him. Right? We rebel, we sin, and whether, whether it's our sin personally that affects us or the sin of the society and just the sin nature that affects us, it is our sin which has led us to most of our trials. I would say that sin really is the reason for all trials, but it might not be our personal sin. And yet God stoops to extend pity even though we are in that position. You know, like if we tell our kids, don't do that, you might get hurt, and they get hurt, there's, what we tell you? You know, there's, there might be that twinge of pity, but in a sense you're like, well, you got to learn that lesson. And God stoops to bend to extend us pity. The other thing is about these terms, now I'm not a Greek scholar of any kind, but this word of is a genitive, which, I read this, could mean source. Source. So, Glory is sourced in the Father. Life is sourced in the Father. Light and and all that is sourced in the Father. Mercy is sourced in the Father. God is the source of all things glorious, the source of all. He is then the source of all mercy. So if, if the idea of of means source, then what that means is it's it's like it's like we say this. If you want to hear the real story, go to the what? Go to the source. If you want mercy, Where must you turn? To the source. And so many go to secondary sources. Now God has given us other avenues of mercy, but go to Him for mercy. He is the compassionate Father. Beautiful. The second term He gives is the God of all comfort. We're still just kind of introducing it. And I want to cross-reference a couple of passages. Normally I like to just stay 
right in the passage, but I think this is going to be beautiful for you. So if you put, uh, we don't have bulletins today, so if you put a finger or a piece of paper, and let's look uh, a little bit back in our New Testament to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to just look at two passages and lead us to a conclusion. So here's some conclusions already if you're lacking comfort. The creative, powerful, sovereign God is willing to stoop to bend to you, to pity you. Isn't that great? Praise God. And the other is that he is the source of these things. He is the source of mercy. If you want mercy, let's go to him. Go to the source. He is the compassionate father. Now, this is going to be, I think this is going to be thrill, thrilling to you. Uh, look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and uh, down to verse number uh, 16. Kind of a benediction aspect of it, but there's some truth here for us, okay? 2 Timothy 2, verse 16. And I want to put this, in our, put this in our mind and then look at one other place. Okay, 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Now, since we're already discussing, let's, let's open it up for discussion again. There's two types of comfort that God provides in this verse, these two verses. There's two types of comfort. One is super easy because it has the word right in front of the word comfort. What is the first type of comfort that he offers? He offers eternal comfort. What do you imagine that's talking about? This is easy. What do you imagine that's talking about? Yeah, I would think that's talking about all that comes into eternal life. Listen, we have eternal comforts awaiting us. And even the eternal comfort now of being not separated from God. And how is this, another softball, how is this eternal comfort provided? Through Christ. It even says that. It even includes him in the benediction that Jesus Christ himself and God, plural, who loved us. They both loved us. And they both gave us, in a sense, eternal comfort and good hope through grace. That's the first type of comfort. The other comfort is we get this comfort as we work and speak. He provides this everyday regular comfort for us. But he's provided us this eternal comfort through grace and then ultimately through Christ and he will provide for us comfort to do good works and words. Put that in your mind for a second and look at John chapter 14. Okay? And then we'll be back to 2 Corinthians. Now just think about that for a minute. Think about what we learned and look at John 14, verse 16. Okay? This is in the passage where Jesus is uh, giving his final discourse to his disciples before he leaves. It starts with, do not let your heart be troubled. They're freaking out. You're leaving. We're staying. We won't want to be separated. Jesus provides them comfort. Do not let your hearts be troubled. The whole chapter begins with that. And then down in verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another. In the ESV, it says helper, but remember what it said in the King James? It says comforter. Okay, might even say that in New King James. Might say that in the NIV. What's the NIV say, Tony? You carry an NIV? Counselor, okay. Comforter, help, helper, counselor. But it says another comforter. Now I want you to remember this, that there's two words for another in the Greek. One is another of, the, of a different kind, another of the same kind. If, I, if there was a bowl of fruit and I said, Derek, will you hand me, and I'm eating a banana, and I said, will you hand me another piece of fruit? It wouldn't matter what he grabbed. If I said, give me another banana. See, but we don't have those terms. Another means the same thing. In the Greek, if they use this word, I think it's alas. I don't pretend to be a Greek scholar, but it would mean this is another of the exact same kind. In other words, the helper, 
the counselor, the comforter that's coming is exactly the same as me. Now keep reading. And he will be what? With you forever. Now he explains who this will be. The spirit of truth who the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you. And something's going to change on the day of Pentecost. He's now going to be preposition change. He's not going to be with you. He's going to be in you. And his main job is the title that he's given, helper, counselor, comforter. Now, putting these two, going back to 2 Corinthians now, we've looked at these, putting these two things together, you know what we learn? We learn that the whole Trinity is out for our comfort. The whole Trinity is active in giving us comfort. The Father gives us comfort. The Son has provided eternal comforts and then sends another comforter who now lives within us for comfort. Isn't that cool? The whole Trinity is at work. And this Trinity is this massive, glorious being, this this great transcendent God, the Father of all, who says, I will help you, even though the only reason you're in this problem is because of your own doing. What a great God. What a great God. Incredible. It is the character of God, I said this earlier, so I don't need to say it again, that drives our actions. The character of the Trinity. He is merciful and provides us comfort. But now, going back to 2 Corinthians 2, we have to define what we mean. We have to define what we mean by comfort. What is this comfort that the Trinity, this great transcendent God, stoops to give? So there's two important terms in the section in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Comfort and afflictions slash sufferings. Okay? Affliction and sufferings, it's kind of interchangeable in the passage. Uh, those two English words are used. And then the word comfort, of course, is the main one. Comfort, as we, read, as we read it out loud together, you see how many times you're reading the word comfort, ten times in just those few verses. But when we think of comfort, we might think, think of things like a comfy chair or I'm going to slip into something more comfortable. I'm going to get comfortable clothes on. I'm going to eat my comfort food. Right? We think about things that make us, basically things that make us feel better. But the word here is deeper and greater than even that. Like tonight, uh, you know, when there's no, there's no service tonight due to our busy week and, and I'm developing some sort of infection or something's going on, so we're taking tonight off, and I'm going to go home and, and we're going to sit and have lunch, and then I'm going to take this tie off and I'm going to get comfortable. But that's not what this means. That's not what this means. It comes from two words. I'm not trying to be too Greeky today, but parakaleo. Para means to the side of. You hear that in the words like parallel or parallel parga, to the side of. And kaleo means to call. So when you put the two words together, parakaleo, it means to call to the side of. So there's a verb, parakaleo. There's a noun, parakalesis. And you know what that word helper, counselor, comforter word in John 14, the word we just looked at was a 14, 16? The word is paraclete. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete. That's the same word. So what does that really mean? Call to the side of, to come alongside. There are usually, when the verb form is used in the New Testament, there are three types. Let me give you the examples. It can mean just to call or to invite someone to come by you. When Philip, in Acts chapter 8, was by the chariot, and the eunuch is reading from Isaiah. Remember the whole story? He's reading. He doesn't understand. He needs someone to explain it to him. Acts 8.31 says that the eunuch... Parakaleo, he calls, uh, he calls eunuch, or he calls Philip to sit by him. That, it just means simple as that. Hey, come here. 
I mean, we could use this term. A guest comes in and you go, hey, parakaleo, and you invite them to sit by you. That's basically what the word means. Okay, that's one aspect of it. That's not, that's not necessarily what the Holy Spirit is offering here. It could mean, secondly, to call somebody to do something. Okay, now you're, just, you're not just calling them to come by you. You're calling them to do something. It's used this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, when Paul says God is actually making his appeal through Paul to be reconciled to God. The term making his appeal is the word parakaleo. It means what God is doing through Paul is calling people to do something, and that thing to do is to be reconciled to God. And then it can also, I think we're getting closer to now what we're looking at here, is to exhort someone in encouragement. It's used this way in Ephesians 6.22 and Colossians 4.8 when Paul says he is sending Tychicus, a friend of his in the ministry, to parakaleo the people. He's coming to encourage you and provide strength and comfort. Now, the noun form has the idea of exhortation and encouragement as well, and I think this is going to be really gripping for you. I want you to hear the ways it's used, and then we're going to come to this conclusion on comfort. Romans 15.4. We're not going to look at all these, but maybe I should have put them on the screen just to help us. But Romans 15.4 says that all of the Word of God is a parakalesis. All of the Word of God is a parakalesis. It says in 1 Thessalonians 2.3, when Paul is preaching the gospel, it's called parakalesis. In Luke 6.24, it talks about the comforts of heaven. In 1 Timothy 4.15, Paul says, give yourself to the public reading of Scripture, which is a parakalesis. The reading today that we did out loud, the reading that Derek did, which was kind of a summary of verses on comfort, should come alongside and encourage us. And in Luke 2.25, Christ is called the parakalesis of Israel. We know we've heard it in, in hymns, the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. It sure seems that we could say that the greatest forms of comfort in, is the Scripture and the Son of God. The Scripture is a great comfort. Three times... The noun form is used, and there's other places, but summarizing it three times, the scripture is called the comfort. We tend to think, and here's kind of what I'm getting at the bottom line of comfort. We tend to think of comfort as the alleviation of pressure, the removal of pressure. Remember a few weeks ago, I was complaining about this tooth that the dentist filled, and it was like, because he had done something weird to it, it was like squeezing together, and it just hurt so bad. So he made, I made an appointment, I went in, he undid it, and like immediately, the, 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 because they weren't whatever, the, the comfort, it was like, whew, comfort. That's not this word. Comfort in this context is not the alleviation of pressure. It is the strengthening during it. Get it? We would like, we would like God to do what with our pressures and trials? Take them away. Newsflash, it ain't happening. Because if you're not under pressure now, I mean, just wait for it. If you're not experiencing a trial now, it's coming. In this world, you will have tribulations. The comfort is not the removal of trial and the removal of pressure. It is the coming alongside during the pressure. 
And what comes alongside us during the pressure to strengthen us? It is the Word which comes alongside of us and is the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, providing exhortation. God is a God of all comfort, who provides comfort and strength. That might be a better word, strength. But he's a coming alongside exhortation. Exhortation is a strong word, isn't it? It's like, let me exhort you. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a building up word. In the midst of those sufferings, keep enduring. Now, let's talk a little bit about affliction and define that term before we make some final thoughts. The terms are closely related, affliction and suffering. It means to be, one of the words means to be crushed or squeezed together, to be affected by something bad. But if we notice, I want to point something out that's, that's helpful. Look at verse 5. Um, it says, we share abundantly in Christ's, in Christ's sufferings. Uh, the idea here, and, and because of the culture that we live in, very few of us have faced affliction and suffering for the sake of Christ and for the sake of righteousness. Maybe a little bit of rejection or not feeling uh, accepted. But like the Beatitudes say, when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Primarily what is being discussed by Paul in 2 Corinthians is the suffering that comes because of our relationship with Jesus and because of our righteous living. Turn one page in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Just a page maybe in your Bible. Suffering that we're talking about is not the toothache. It's not the trouble that we're dealing with, although God so lovingly does extend comfort in those moments. Here's 2 Corinthians 4, 7-11 where Paul describes some of this affliction. Verse, let's start in verse 8. We are afflicted. Same word. Pressed. Flipsis. We are pressed and crushed. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body of, uh, always caring in the body of death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being over to get death, for Jesus' sake. The idea here, like Philippians 3.10 says, we are to enjoy the fellowship of his sufferings. 1 Peter 4.13 says, we rejoice that you share in Christ's sufferings. So what were Christ's sufferings? Rejection, mocking, death. That's what's being talked about here. God will strengthen you when you are rejected, when you are left out, when you are mocked, when you are treated unfairly, and for many believers, our brothers and sisters throughout history, when they are what? Killed. <laughs> when those believers are beheaded on the beach, and we've seen those videos, or at least we've seen the news clips, right? Those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, when they read 2 Corinthians 1, they have a little different view of it than we as American Christians do, don't we? Now, praise God, we have this sort of freedom. But this sort of freedom has softened the church. The church has such a soft, like, I mean, this is a weird thing, but soft underbelly. Like, there's, there's not strength and vigor in the church because it hasn't, in the American church, because it hasn't suffered. That's not to make light of the suffering and trials that we go through, because I think God is so good that he comforts us even in those other afflictions. But I want to say, I want to make it clear that primarily what this is talking about is comfort and affliction when you're rejected for Christ. But secondarily, it is a comfort to us whenever we deal with other afflictions also. 
let's make these kind of quick applications before we rush away uh, into the rest of the passage. First, we can be thankful for this time in our lives that makes it pretty easy to live for Jesus, can't we? I mean, it makes it really easy to live for Christ. There are troubles. There are, we've talked about it, where family rejects us. Or, but I mean, we're not under threat of death. We're not under threat of, at least at this point, loss of job. Or, or shut your mouth in the public square. We don't have that. These sufferings are simply rejection or loss of relationship, which are painful and hard. But it may be soon that imprisonment or violence may be foisted upon us. I've talked to Max about this a lot. I've talked to Judah about it a little bit. The idea that uh, when, when these children get to be our age, who knows? They might be in the culture now that is, this message hopefully will be ringing in their, in their minds. Let us, so the applications would be these. Let's rejoice because of the freedom, but let's be prepared if that time is to come. Now, secondarily, the afflictions that suffers in this life due to the sinful society we live in, when we face the death of a loved one, when we deal with a health condition, when we have a loss of a job or a wayward child or an unsaved spouse, these type of afflictions and suffering, these pressures that crush us. I got a little vice out on my workshop that I can you know, put stuff in if I'm working with something to hold it secure, you know, and sometimes when Jessa likes to go out there and work alongside me, we'll squeeze it real tight and like we can, you know, smash a piece of wood in there, you know. That's the idea of this word and sometimes maybe you even in recent days have felt that type of pressure. It doesn't mean that, I, I don't think that this passage means that this comfort is only if you're suffering for Christ's sufferings, although that is the primary application. He does offer comfort as well for other sufferings. Paul, of course, was the master at suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 talks about all of his afflictions, and again, all because of his relationship to Jesus. He was stoned. He was 40 lashes less one, just summarizing, three nights shipwrecked. Don't you love this section? This is easy to memorize because it uses danger so much. Danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my people, from Gentiles. I'm not going to say danger every time. City, wilderness, sea, False brothers, toil, hardship, many sleepless nights, hungers, thirsty, no food, cold, exposure. That's suffering. And what he's saying is in the midst of that affliction, the Trinity, God, comforts us, strengthens us. Look at how he describes this. He describes it, if you look in verse number, let's see here, verse number six, he says, uh, is it verse number six? I'm sorry, I might not... Um, no, it's not. It's verse number 8, forgive me. Verse number 8 in chapter 1, 2 Corinthians 1. He says that they experienced affliction in Asia. Unsure, unsure where, what exactly he's talking about here. There's no, there's no way to pinpoint exactly what experience he's mentioning. Could be any one of the dangers I just listed. But he says, you, apparently the Corinthians knew it. And look how he describes it. Now I want to see, again, just to remind us one more time, it's Different afflictions suffered for Christ are different than afflictions suffered just because we're living in a sinful society. But these terms and words could be words that describe the way you feel even right now. Three of them. First of all, he says, regarding this experience, which we don't know what it was, first thing he says is in verse 8, we were utterly burdened beyond our strength. You ever feel that way? Utterly burdened beyond our strength. The idea is weighed down. The situation was beyond our ability to cope with it, right? Now, he's talking again about Christ's sufferings, but we can equate that to ours. Second, 
he says at the end of verse 8, we even despaired of life itself. The idea is that there is no way out of this pressure. There's no way to escape it. There's no way to, uh, you're at a complete loss. And then he even goes further in verse 9. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence or the answer of death. You know what he's saying here? He's saying that he believed that in the midst of this experience that God had handed down a verdict and the result would be death. So whatever this situation is in Asia, which he just leaves very vague, it, it burdened him down beyond the point of even coping. It, uh, it despaired him of his own life. And he actually felt like God was handing down the verdict of death. Incredible way to describe the intense suffering he was facing. And we may feel that way as well. What we learn then, when we define the terms the way we've defined them, as far as comfort and affliction, is that when we face afflictions for the sake of Christ, and even when we face afflictions and sufferings because of the issues of this life, God is the comforter and the Father of mercies who pities us and comes alongside us with his word and his spirit to provide the strength and exhortation that we need to endure those afflictions. That's what we need to remember. It's not the alleviation of them, it's the endurance of them. The word is the promise, the indwelling spirit is the promise, confirming our relationship with God. The entire trinity is at work. When we feel like we can despair and can't go on, these are the things we turn to. Now, even further than that, and lastly, Paul says, I mean, that's enough encouragement right there, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty encouraging. To me, it's, it's wonderful. God, God and his word come alongside and comfort us in the midst of all of our afflictions. And then he goes on to say the reasons or the purposes behind our affliction. He gives two of them. In verse 4 and 6, there's one. And then in verse 9. Let's look at number one first. Verse 4 and 6. This is the purpose of our affliction. God comforts us in all our affliction. Why? so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Verse 6, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and your salvation. And the, so often, so the first purpose is that we are, we are troubled so we can comfort others who are troubled. So often in the midst of affliction, what we need and desire is strength. That is really at the heart of this idea of comfort. A strengthening coming alongside. And God does that with us so that we are able to come alongside others. And second, and maybe more importantly, is in verse number nine. We felt we had the verdict of death, but all of this came, Paul says, that made us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Second purpose is that we might depend on God, not on ourselves. And don't you love what Paul notes about God? When I turn to depend on this God, I'm reminded that he's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. He says at the end of verse number 9, He delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. The confidence there as we rely on God. When things are going good, it is easy to turn our backs on God. Perhaps that's why He brings affliction into our lives. To cause us to rely on Him. When we are weak, His grace is sufficient and we are made strong. Ultimately, Affliction drives us to God so we can be thankful for it. I remember as I was putting the ending on this last night, I remembered something. Uh, I couldn't remember the quote, and then I was able to Google it and find it. Thank goodness for Google. And it was Spurgeon who said this. 
um, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. And I want to just read, I don't know that this is from Spurgeon, or, but, but it kind of explains what he meant by that. Spurgeon's comment was not a sarcastic, pucker up, waves, <laughs> like as if the wave is trouble, bring it on, but is of humble and childlike faith in God who works everything out for our good. We should encourage one another to kiss the wave. And as we do, they are, they are words that are spoken with tearful lumps in our throats and our hearts being squeezed in a vice. In other words, we don't say kiss the wave like for those of you who have experienced super heartaches since we've just been together. Well, kiss the wave. Right? That's not, the idea is not to be flipping like that going on. The nearness of God is our good. And the trials that we endure in this fallen world, perhaps more than any other thing, has a tendency to awaken us to this truth. Isn't that neat? We know that God is good, but trials tend to make us realize that the most. We remember that Jesus is called Emmanuel, the God with us, and he bore the cross for our sake. Can the wave of trials drown us if we have a substitute who endured our greatest trial in our place? We can kiss the wave because Christ is near to us and supreme in all things. He died and rose again to vanquish evil. Christ is the wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. When there is nothing in heaven or earth that can separate you from the love of Christ, waves and trials can only throw you onto the rock of ages. Resting on that rock is where we must be and stay forever. And we bless the Lord for using the means of trials to remind us of that. That's good. We can kiss the wave because it drives us to the rock of ages. I really, my heart has been for you all because so many of us have been enduring trials and I wanted this to be a real comfort. You know, I don't have any words of comfort that are sourced in Andy, but so thankful for this passage from God's word which provides that comfort for all of us, that strengthening, that exhortation. Let's thank him for it. God, we thank you so much for Jesus, our Savior, the Word of God, the comfort. You call yourself the comforter, the strengthener, the counselor, the helper, the exhorter. God, help us to do, even as Spurgeon said, to kiss the wave that brings us to the rock, to be thankful even in the midst of trials for more than any other truth. It, it helps us to realize that you are good. We know you are working all things out for our good. We pray, God, that we would be reminded of that. Help us not become bitter in affliction, but become stronger. Help us to turn to your word and to rely on the indwelling spirit for these things. God, bless those who are hurting and afflicted, suffering. Whether it be a physical struggle, a question in their mind, some sort of um, loss as we've several in our congregation have experienced recently a loss, a, uh, a family member, um, maybe a hopeless situation, to remember that these things are meant to help us to depend upon you, and we, we declare that we depend upon you today. Again, it's my hope, God, that if anybody in here doesn't know Christ, that they would turn to him in faith and receive him as personal Savior. As we sing a closing song, God, remind us of your goodness and take us from this place rejoicing in what we've heard today in Jesus' name. Amen.